Please remain standing while I pray. Father, how can we ever express how wonderful is the deep, deep love of Christ? We thank you that though you have revealed that to us through your word, we pray for the activity of your Holy Spirit to bring this word to life in our lives, in our minds, our hearts, our activity. We pray, Father, that our daily life might reflect our deep appreciation of this amazing love. Help us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Thank you to the musicians. And uh, please turn back to that passage that Bob read for us, John chapter 17. I don't know if you've ever said this. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. But I'll pray for you. How often I have made that promise, uttered those very words. It was genuine enough at the time, but with the passage of time, the busyness of life, I didn't pray for that person. I suspect I'm not alone in that experience, which is why certain men and women in our lives hold a very special place in our affections because they not only promise to pray for us, they actually do pray for us. Tom Toton was one such man. To have Tom pray for you was a blessed thing indeed. One day when the story of this church is recounted in heaven, I've no doubt that the prayers of Tom Toton and other men and women of his ilk will be seen to have been instrumental in the Lord's blessing upon this church these past 60 years. Tom was one of the original gang of three. Tom, Dick and Harry. Tom Toton, Dick Pink, an ex-squadron leader, didn't quite have the curly moustache, I don't think he did, he did have a moustache but not one of those ones, and Harry Kilbride who was the first pastor of this church. 47 years ago, the three of them covenanted to pray together on a Monday between 11 and 12 for the previous day's ministry of the church. 47 years later, that prayer meeting continues. So every Monday in term time in this church, a group of men gather to continue the legacy of Tom, Dick and Harry to pray for God's blessing upon this church. Now, to visit Tom at his home down there at 11 Mansfield Road was one of the greatest privileges of serving as a pastor here in this church. Whatever the season, a roaring fire greeted you as you were ushered into the back room. So after a while, you learn on these visits to always dive for the alcove as far from the fire as possible so that you could make it through the next hour. And having covered the general business of how life is, how's the family and so on, it was time for Tom to get down to business and that meant prayer. Tom had an incredible encyclopedic knowledge of what was going on and what needed to be prayed for. At the time, I had the privilege of being the chairman of Insight, the school's work. Tom knew much more about what was going on every day with those Insight workers than I did. 
I hope he never guessed that, but I just say suitably dumb and nodded. But he was incredible in his care and his love for God, God's people, God's work, and God's ministry. To be prayed for and to pray with Tom was one of the great privileges of life. But you know, that pales into insignificance beside that which we have before us here this morning in John 17. Facing, remember, his excruciating death, Jesus prays for that which is closest to his heart. That's what we've been looking at these past three weeks. He prays, firstly, for himself, that God would give him the strength to complete the work that the Father had sent him to earth to do, namely to go to the cross. That's the first part of the prayer. And then, as we saw last week, he prays for these apostles, these disciples, who are going to take the message of that cross, of that death and its implications, into the world and pass it on from generation to generation to generation, the apostolic gospel. But then the third part is he prays for all those down through the ages who are going to receive that message and in receiving it become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays for the church. Within hours, as we're going to remember in a short while, he would give his very life and pay the ultimate price to win us. But beforehand, he prays. What's more, Christian, he continues to pray. Hebrews 7 tells us that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Isn't that remarkable? Every day, Jesus prays for you if you're a member of his family, if you're a Christian. If the prayer of a righteous man like Tom Toton is effective, then how much more the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christian here this morning, I want you to go away grasping this astonishing fact that Jesus prays for you. You were in his mind when he prayed this prayer. And therefore it makes this one of the most precious, wonderful passages in the whole of the Bible for Christian people. He prays for you just as he did for Peter. Do you remember Peter at this time? So boastful, wasn't he? Lord, the rest of this rabble, they're going to leave you, but I will never leave you. I'm made of different stuff. You don't know yourself, Peter. You're going to run away as well. But Peter, I have prayed for you. Satan has sought to sift you, but I have prayed for you. And the only reason that Peter withstands that onslaught and his abject failure is because Jesus prays for him. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you know yourself, don't you? I know myself to be an abject failure in one way or another. But Jesus has prayed for us and the fact that we are here this morning amongst the company of his people is the fact that he has prayed for us. And that prayer is effective and powerful. But what exactly is he praying for his people here in John 17? I simply want you to see two things that he prays. The first is found in verses 21 to 23. He prays that we will be united in him together. 
Look what it says. I pray for those who will believe in me through their, that is the apostles' message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now in praying for unity, isn't, Jesus isn't talking about a shared sentiment. You know, like we say they were united in grief. That's a shared sentiment. He wasn't praying that. He wasn't even praying in a shared intellectual assent for a common cause. Comrades in the claws together. He wasn't praying for that. He's talking about a relationship. He's praying about relational unity. He prays for those throughout the ages who are going to be brought to him through this apostolic message. Being aware that in so doing that they were going to be joined to the most profound, mysterious, glorious, wonderful relationship in the universe, that of God himself. There's a mystery, isn't it? Ordinary men and women like you and I can be brought and united to God. That's what happens through the cross. And Jesus is praying that we would know that unity. I pray that they might be one, Father, just as you and me are one. What he's praying for, essentially, is that we would grasp that the unity that exists between God the Father and God the Son is also there in the relationship that he has brought us to through himself, with him and with one another. He prays for that unity. Now, of course, this prayer was initially answered when 3,000 people trusted Christ on the day of Pentecost. But that's only a small number. Throughout the past 2,000 years, literally millions of men and women, boys and girls, have been added to his family as they have trusted Christ and have been brought into a wedding with the Lord Jesus. That's how the Bible describes it, isn't it? We are wedded to Christ. And therefore, we're wedded to one another by the gospel. There is already a supernatural unity in the love and in the life of God brought about by God himself that the world can't conjure up, that none of us can conjure up, but is a reality through the work of Christ on the cross and the activity of the Holy Spirit bringing the gospel to life and bringing us into his family. You see, this unity isn't something that Christians have to work at to engineer No, it's a given. It's a given in the gospel. When you become a Christian, you are brought into the family. Just in the way that when you were born, you had no say into the family into which you were born. You were suddenly just part of that family. But what you're called to do, what I'm called to do as a Christian in that family, in Ephesians, is to maintain the unity. I can't create it, but I can break it. And Paul prays about that and urges us to pray about that. Because, not simply that he wants a united church just because it's a nice thing. The reason he wants a church to know its unity in Christ is that the world, people who aren't yet Christians, might see in this community that's formed by the gospel something so radically different, so glorious, so supernatural because it can't be conjured up by men, that they are attracted to it. Now in praying that, Jesus isn't praying something new. If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, don't go back there, but I'll I'll read it for you. Deuteronomy 4. This very idea was there 
way back in Moses' day and the Israelites. This is what God said uh, to Moses. See, Moses, I've taught you decrees and laws today that you may follow me with the people into the land you're entering. Observe them carefully so they will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these things and say, surely this nation is wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us when we pray? Do you see the picture? The expectation back there in the Old Testament is that as Israel made its way in the world, the nations around should see something so beautiful in their life, so amazing, so wise in the way that they lived and the way that they related, that they were intrigued by it, that they were drawn to it. It was to be magnetic. That was the intention. That's what the intention is in Psalm 133, isn't it? How blessed it is when God's people live together in unity. Why? Because there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Do you see how that works? A church that is united in Christ, understanding the privilege of being a Christian, entrusted with taking this gospel out, seeing that as its paramount calling and its need, that church has its eye upon the world. It wants other people to come into that relationship. Where that happens, there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. People become Christians. Perhaps it's easier to think of it in the other way. What happens when a church is divided? Some of you have been in that situation, sadly. When a church is divided, the first thing ultimately to go out the window is mission, it's evangelism. Because you go and say to people, oh, you want to come and join our church? You want to know Jesus for yourself? You want to be a follower of him? And the reply is, why should I? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You don't seem to love each other very much. You're always falling out with each other. You call me into a unity with God. You're a sham. And it's right, isn't it? So you see the expectation right back there in the Old Testament and here in Jesus' prayer in John 17 is for the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of mission. And this love and concern that Christians are to have for one another is but a pale reflection of the love and concern of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit for his people. This is what Jesus is praying for Chesington Evangelical Church and every church throughout time, throughout the world. People, you see, need to see this unity in action. We live in very interesting days where the whole culture is rapidly, rapidly departing from its Christian heritage. And the response of us as Christians can often be to that antagonism, to that derision, to that apathy. One of, we've got to fight for this, we've got to fight for that. We've got to fight for our rights. What the world needs to see is not Christians fighting for their rights. It needs to see this very thing that Jesus is talking about. A community that love one another because they are loved by God. That God's love is shed abroad in their everyday relationship. The world is longing for community. We're living in a day where it's, it's as Bob prayed, it's a broken world. People have got everything, but they've got nothing. 
And here in the midst of it is one of God's outposts, one of his signposts to heaven. And he says, when people come in contact with my people, this should be going on. That's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that they will have a glimpse of what a privilege it is to be in me, in Christ, in God, to share in that relationship. That that dictates everything else. It produces a humility in their relationships with one another because that's the humility that is there in the Godhead. And whilst Jesus isn't primarily praying for non-Christians, he is implicitly praying for non-Christians, isn't he, here? Because it's through the unity of his people that other people will come to Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, I venture to say 99% of us came to Christ because we not only heard the gospel, we saw the gospel authentically in action, in the way that people loved and cared for one another. And God used that to draw us to Christ. It was authentic. It was real. It was that which I was longing for, to belong to a true community. That's what Jesus is praying for here. So important to the head of the church. Think about this. What would you pray for if you knew that tomorrow was your last day on earth? That tomorrow you were going to die. Moreover, if you know that tomorrow you were going to die an excruciating death, what would you pray for? It's very telling, isn't it, what we would pray for. What does Jesus pray for? To be delivered from this? No, Lord, it's for this I've come. He prays for the people who are going to be blessed by it. His eye, his heart, his passion is upon you and I, Christian. It is absolutely amazing. He prays for the unity of God's people. Going to the cross, Jesus has a, his eye upon the glory to come. Do you remember in Hebrews it tells us that we are to consider him who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Have you ever asked yourself what that joy is? The joy is the joy of having his people, his family, his brothers and sisters born from every ethnic background, every educational background, every era of the world's history brought back to God into a new humanity to populate a new heaven, a new earth. That's the joy set before him that enabled him to endure the cross. It's why he prays as he does. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Look secondly with me, please. He prays not only for glory now, that the world will glimpse something of that in the lives of Christians and Christian community. He prays that the church would know they're going to be united with him forever, verses 24 to 26. Not only in him, but with him. Now, please forgive me. Here I'm going to show my age and my total lack of contemporary culture. One of my favorite films was Far From the Madding Crowd. Not that awful remake that was done recently. I recorded it on the TV and then I sat down to watch it. Oh, no, it's that one. It's awful. I mean the original one done by John Schlesinger, which is a brilliant masterpiece. And the story revolves around two people. One is Gabriel. He's a farmhand down in Dorset. And the other is the beautiful Bathsheba who lives on the farm next door. And Gabriel is besotted with Bathsheba. 
And his great dream, and he expresses this to her, is to say, Bathsheba, one day I shall be with thee, and you will be with me. We will be sat down in our home together around the fire. I mean, how could a girl possibly turn down an offer like that? Yes, I am an old romantic. It's the Welsh in me. But you know, the point is this, isn't it? If you love somebody, what's the one thing you want? You want to be with them. And even getting in the car, getting on the train, going to work separates you. Going abroad might separate you. There's a longing, isn't there? The one thing you want if you love somebody is to be with them. Think how many pop songs reflect that. But of course, there's one thing that mocks that. It's death. Poignant email from David Gillam this week, talking about the privilege of having Anne-Marie as his wife for the past 40 years. But now suddenly, she's gone. Her presence is no longer with him. See, death mocks that deep, deep-seated longing in our heart for togetherness. It's interesting, therefore, that earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus addresses this very issue to a group of bewildered disciples who just can't get their head around the fact that he's going to the cross and then he's going to heaven and it's all too much for them to take in. He's saying, look, My death isn't going to be the end of it. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says to them in John 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come back to take you to be with me. That where I am, you may be also. Those are the words of a lover, aren't they? They're the words of somebody who's passionately in love. I shall be around the fire with thee, Bathsheba. Where you are, I will be. And Jesus is saying to these bewildered disciples, troubled in their hearts as they are, look, it's okay. I'm God, I'm in control. And all this is part of my unfolding plan. And my ultimate plan is that this family that I will gather will not be separated by death. But in fact, death will be but a passageway into my presence. And ultimately, I'm going to reclothe you with a new body to inhabit a new heaven, a new earth forever, together forever. That's what he's praying for. You know, the greatest benefit of being a Christian is not forgiveness of sin. It's not even as we think in this 500th anniversary of the Reformation, justification by faith. Unspeakably wonderful, though both those truths are. The greatest blessing is being present with God now and forever. That's what the gospel does. It brings us into relationship with him so that we might be with him forever. And the Holy Spirit who awakens us to Christ witnesses, says Paul in Romans 8, with our spirit that we are the children of God. But he doesn't stop there. He said, if we're the children of God, 
then we are heirs. We have an inheritance. Inheritance is so interesting, isn't it? It's an awful thing how people can be waiting for their inheritance. But we won't go there. But here's the inheritance of the Christian. And the difference about this inheritance and any other inheritance that we might receive in this world is this. As Peter says, it will never perish, spoil, or fade because it's kept in heaven for you who believe. What is it? It's to be with Christ. It's to come home and be home with him. That's your inheritance, Christian. To be with the lover of your soul forever. And on that great day when faith gives way to sight, then what's written here in verse 24 will come about. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus, you see, is praying that his people will see him for who he really is and enjoy him for who he is forever. When he was on earth, Jesus was so wonderful to be around, wasn't he? People flocked to him. They were drawn to him, to the beauty of his character, to the kindness of his actions. Here was God on earth showing us what God is like. And they came to him. The self-sufficient wouldn't come to him. They were annoyed by him. Because he was telling them they couldn't make it to God on their own. But those who knew themselves to be broken, those who knew themselves to be sinful, those who knew themselves to be in need, they flocked to him. And when you've tasted Christ, doesn't something of that begin to develop in your heart? You see, for the most part, Jesus' glory was shielded and hidden from these disciples, wasn't it? But there were a couple of occasions where it burst through, most notably on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John, who gave us this gospel, saw something of the brilliance and the beauty and the true nature of God. It was glorious. They just were dumbstruck by it. They didn't know what to say. They mumbled out some things about making tents for them, but it was just gibberish, really. But later on, John begins his gospel by saying, we beheld his glory. And what was it? It was full of grace and truth. Don't you love somebody who's full of grace and truth? Only Jesus is full of grace and truth. And that's who you've been brought to, Christian. Later on, of course, that same apostle was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, a Greek island at the end of the first century. And he had another sight of the Lord Jesus. This time, the risen ascended Christ. And when Christ appeared to him that time, he fell on his face, he said, as though dead. He was just overwhelmed by the colossal nature and radiance and beauty and power of this Jesus. Now what Jesus is praying here is astonishing. He's praying that that which John knew in part on the Isle of Patmos would be ours forever. 
that one day we would be ushered into the presence of Christ to enjoy that brilliance, that radiance, that glory forever. Do you see the wonderful thing that he's praying for the church here in verse 24? That you who have, I want, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am. Christian, Jesus is passionate about having you with him. Can you believe that? It's almost too much to believe, isn't it? But it's true. And he's praying that one day we would have the full experience that the Apostle John had in part. People like Brian Sage and Marie Gillam are now experiencing that. But one day, all his people will experience that. So, Jesus' desire for his people is that we see his glory. You see, to be a Christian is to be in him and with him forever. And if we really begin to get a grasp of that, we can't be the same, can we? We can't ever possibly be the same people. So my question, two questions really, is this. Firstly, are you in Christ? If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, it's just brilliant that you're here. I'm just so thankful that you're here. But I want to say to you, you have been made for God. By God and for God. And this God in the Lord Jesus Christ has come to earth to pay the greatest price imaginable to deal with all that rubbish, all that rebellion, all that sin in your life, as it has been in my life. To deal with it at the cross so that we might be brought into a relationship with God. Presently, we're in enmity with him. It doesn't feel like that, but that's the point. Because if you don't want him to be king, you're an enemy. And he's saying, I am the king. Come, be my friend. And your greatest need is to be reconciled to God through his death at Calvary. If you're not in him now, you won't be with him then. Rather, you'll meet him as your judge. Who will say to you, why not? Why didn't you come into my family? Why didn't you bow the knee to me? Why didn't you stop your arrogance? Why didn't you see me in all my beauty and be spoiled for everything else? How foolish. But today he says, come to me. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Come into my family. There's a question here for those who are Christians. If by his grace you've trusted him, I simply want to ask you, as I've been asking myself, is he the supreme love and passion of your life. I'm not asking, is he important to you? The fact that you're here is indicative that obviously is important to you, given up a Sunday morning to come to church. No, I'm asking this. Is he the love of your life? Is he the passion of your life? Is being in him and the prospect of being with him forever dominant on your horizon? Does it control how you think tomorrow morning when you wake up? 
that after you've shaken off the slumber, you remind yourself, by the grace of God, I'm in Christ. I'm part of his family. I'm going to be with him forever. Life can't possibly be the same, can it? Because whatever comes our way, and for the, it's going to be a mixture of good and bad, of joy and tragedy, to be in him and with him is the most secure place in all the world. Have you ever thought why Christians sing? Why do we sing on a Sunday morning? Christians, somebody said to me this week, Christians are singers. I thought, yeah, that's right. Why do we sing? We sing about that which is closest to our hearts, don't we? Sad to say, it may be about a football team. maybe about another person. But we do. That's how we use Music and words to express the deep feelings and emotions and longings of our heart. Christians sing because they've discovered in Christ the pearl of greatest price. They want to sing about him. They want to say how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. They want to sing about the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast as an ocean beyond comprehension, but I can dive into it, knowing that he will support me. Christians have a song in their heart because something of the beauty of Christ has dawned upon them and they're beginning to be spoiled for everything else. And one of the great evidences that that's a reality with us is we desire to grow in that relationship with the Lord. How do we do that? The same way we do any relationship. With words. He speaks to us. He's revealed his mind. He's told us all we need to know for this life in this book, the Bible. And we speak to him through prayer. Verbally, quietly, alone, best of all with one another. You see, the way this relationship works is that Jesus speaks to us through the word. We speak to him and pour out our hearts through prayer. I guess Tom, Dick and Harry knew that, which is why they were passionate about gathering together. Now, in part, we've been looking at John 17 in preparation for our two weeks of prayer. But actually, there's nothing about are praying in this passage, is there? There's nothing that tells us how to pray, when to pray, what to do. That's because Jesus is after something different. He's after our hearts. There's plenty about our hearts here. What our heart is captured by, that will be the priority of our life. That's a reality, isn't it? If my heart is captured with Christ... I don't have to be told to pray or urged by the pastor and elders to pray. There will be something in my heart that wants to pray and recognizes the need I have of my brothers and sisters to help me to pray so I'm so poor at it. But when we come together to do it, collectively we're saying, Lord, it's such a wonderful thing to be part of your family. We want others to come into that family. That's what we're praying about. And in that way, We are echoing the Lord's prayer for his people. 
We pray not because we must do, but because we want to. Wouldn't it be wonderful, not only if in the next two weeks our meetings were full of us gathering together to pray, especially on a Tuesday, but rather that it became a priority of our life. Because prayer is that act of utter dependence, isn't it? Saying, Lord, we can't do this, only you can do this. I've got brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, mums and dads. I've got people I'm with at work. I've got neighbours. I've got people that are on my heart that I love dearly. They're not yours. Oh, will you pray with me for them that the gospel might go out, that they will be drawn into this unity of the love and life of God. That's what prayer is about. For the glory of God, you see, nothing so glorifies God as men and women trusting Christ. Trusting him forever. Brothers and sisters, we are in him in order that we might be with him. Let that be the priority that dictates how we live our individual life and our collective life together. Let's pray. Father, in the busyness of life, you know full well that we, we lose sight of what a privilege it is to be a Christian. So we're thankful for a morning like this when we can be reminded of it. Lord, in our lives, we are so often conscious of our many failings and sins. We've said things this week. We wish we could take the words back. We've done things that are a discredit to you and a shame to ourselves. But Lord God, when your son went to the cross, he knew all of that. Satan has sought to sift you, Peter, but I have prayed for you. Thank you that you are greater than the evil one and that you have paid the price to bring us into a relationship that can never be broken. Lord, capture our hearts, whatever age we're at, that our lives might be lived for your glory and for the good those around us who need to come to Christ. Lord, bless us as we gather around your table. Commune with us as we reflect upon your love for us and the incredible cost that Jesus paid to have us as lovers. Amen.